You are listening to Life Over Coffee, and I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. This is episode 176. Somebody asked me the question about the five love languages. It's a book, and so I'm going to answer that question in this podcast. If you want to talk about what I am going to share with you, please go to our website, and you can do that. Our website is just a jump in with people asking all sorts of questions about all kinds of things. Make sure you get your username and password, log in and ask whatever question you have. Uh, we'll be glad to interact with you. That is what we do. It is why we exist to help Christians to be better Christians, to help you in your sanctification as we are trying to grow and mature in our own sanctification. So thank you again for joining me for the podcast. Episode 176, the exact title is, What is Your Opinion About Five Love Languages? Someone did ask me my opinion on that book. It's a popular book that has benefited many folks, but they wanted to know if there were inherent problems with the book. The question was asked uh, a few weeks ago, and before I could chime in, the, the biblicist, the integrationist, the secularist, the confused, and the adamant, they weighed in with how to think about this matter. And so I figured that I would wait a bit before I shared my two cents, and now I am going to share my two cents. Five Love Languages is a book by Gary Chapman that identifies five critical areas in which to demonstrate love practically to another person. It's that simple. On the surface, it's a great idea. Because none of us can say that we've mastered the skill of loving others well. If you think you've mastered the skill of loving others well, let me remind you ever so briefly about your last conflict, whatever that conflict was. We will always struggle with this idea of relationship because, quite simply, we're fallen people living in a fallen world, and no one, none of us, are going to do it perfectly and so Gary Chapman, I assume, was thinking about these kinds of things and wanted to give a template for how to love others well. And so he wrote this book called Five Love Languages. Chapman was championing a solution to this universal problem by writing a book. And truthfully, Christians have benefited the most from his book, though he could just as easily market it to a secular world because it's not overtly Christian as you read the book, and I think many non-Christians have read the book and they've benefited from it, but I would suspect that Christians have benefited the most from the book, and the primary reason for that is that the book would resonate more with believers in that they, we, believers, generally are more interested in other-centered relationships. Generally speaking, Christians would, would be on the lookout for ways to learn how to love others well, and so that is an itch, and praise God that that is an itch, and I hope it's an itch with you that you want to continue to grow in this idea of loving others well. I've been a Christian for a long time, and I have not mastered it yet. 
and I want to continue to grow and learn. And I just think innately because of regeneration that there is an other-centered quality or desire, passion about us. And therefore, Chapman's book comes along. It's a popularized book, and with a lot of popularized books, uh, people hear about it. A lot of people hear about it, and they use it, and therefore many have genuinely, authentically benefited from it. I think you could poll any congregation, and there will be several folks who will tell you that they have benefited from Chapman's work, and it gave them ideas and categories to love a person according to their uniqueness. If you're not familiar with his book, The Five Love Languages are, here they are, number one, receiving gifts. It's not in an order of priority, by the way. It just depends on the individual that you are loving. But number one, receiving gifts. Number two, quality time. Number three, words of affirmation. Number four, acts of service. Number five, physical touch. And I can tell you, as I think about my own family, I mean, some of these kind of leap off the page. I know my son, for example, uh, he is an acts, uh, acts of service kind of boy. That's the way he is. We used to tongue-in-cheek talk about, uh, this wasn't a sincere prayer, but we would say it tongue-in-cheek, is that we would pray that he would get sick when he was a toddler, because only when he was sick could we hold him and cuddle with him and enjoy him in our laps and in our arms. When he wasn't sick, we could count down 10, 9, 8, 7, and we would never get to one before he's off our laps and he's running and getting into some kind of mess. And so that's the way he is. By the way, as I am doing this podcast, he is out behind our house with a pressure washer and is washing our house. Uh, he wanted to do it himself, and that's who he is. And that's what resonates with him. My wife, on the other hand, she loves touch. She loves physical touch. She loves to be held. She loves to be touched. She, she's very much in the hand-holding, and, and that's just the way, the way that she is, and I'm glad to know that. And so a few of these things do resonate with me. And so those are the five love languages, receiving gifts, quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. The most obvious question is whether these things are wrong to do. And I will not keep you in any kind of suspension here. The, the most obvious answer is that they are not wrong to do. There is no way any responsible person would dismiss these things. I mean, you don't want to say it's dumb, but it would be dumb to dismiss these things, honestly, because they're true. You'll find all of them implied in Scripture, and there's nothing in the Bible that would forbid them in a vacuum as they are, receiving gifts, quality time, for words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch. There's nothing in Scripture that would forbid doing these things. And by the way, as you study the life of Christ in the four Gospels, he did all of them. And so it does beg the question, what's the problem? Well, there must be a problem because the person asked me what my opinion is. And so I, I want to walk through this and try to walk through it carefully. 
Do you remember that group that I mentioned in the introduction? The biblicist, the integrationist, the secularist, the confused, the adamant. Now, you could add to that list, and some of those words that I use are actually synonyms. But there's an eclectic mix of people that are weighing in on this question, and that's why before I would ever enter into it, I I would want you to be cautious. I, I would want to be cautious about how I weigh into it. Some people don't know how to talk well with each other. And so let me speak with broad brushes here, and if the descriptor that I use does not fit you, then move on and praise God that you're not like them. And I say that with a with a wink. But I do want to speak with a broad brush here. And, and again, if it's not you, praise God. I mean, really, seriously, praise praise God. They, God has given you a sense of humility and discretion and, and that you aren't like this. But the truth is, I want to speak specifically to biblicists, bibliocentric people, theologically precise people. They tend, there's a temptation with some to dislike everything that is not black or white, meaning if it is not theologically precise according to their understanding, and I think that's important. I was amazingly theologically precise in 1986, just a few years after God regenerated me. But as I look back on my theological precision so many years ago, I wasn't as theologically precise as I thought I was or as I am now. And I think it would be reasonable to say that if God gives me another 30 years, I'll look back on this day and think, well, I, I really wasn't as smart as I thought I was. And so what I mean is, is that for these biblicists, some of them, if it's not theologically precise according to their understanding— their current understanding. They disdain it and warn everyone else of the heresy. Now, what I want to do here is I want to narrow the biblicist field. I want to narrow the group down to my family. My family, they are biblical counselors. I want to narrow it down to the biblical counselors in this larger group of biblicists or theologically precise people. Because that's what I interact with the most. That's what I have been doing the most uh, in the last 20 years, 20-plus years. Biblical counselors can get so caught up in their rightness that they can hurt people, albeit unwittingly sometimes, ignorantly sometimes. I saw this during one of my breaks during my MABC program, my Master's in Biblical Counseling. The teacher was lecturing us on why James Dobson was an integrationist and why we should not read any of his books. During the break, I remember this so vividly, we're standing outside the classroom. We were outside and outside the classroom, and the more naive among us, the, some younger folks who were just getting into this idea of biblical counseling, this is what one of them said. They said, I, I think I need to go home and get rid of all my Dobson books. And I did not realize he was such an awful teacher and was doing harm to the church, and I need to let others know about this. 
I don't know exactly what I said or if I said anything then, because that was many, many, many years ago. But I do remember what I was thinking. And if I didn't say this then, which I doubt I did, I'll share with you what I was thinking then right now. My aunt lived with a serial adulterer for two decades. By the grace of God and mercy of God, the Lord regenerated him, and, and he has been walking with the Lord for many years. But for two decades, he was a serial adulterer. And I'm talking about a person that would go away for 30 days at a time at a motorcycle rally. And she would call me in tears asking what to do. I was a new Christian, so I had little clue about what she should do. She would tell me how she had been reading books from James Dobson and how they were helping her. Should I go back, like my MABC friend, and tell her that James Dobson is an awful person and was doing harm to the church? No, it would be unwise. It would be immature. It would be careless. It would be harsh. It would be damaging. Sadly, where a lot of these discussions take place, especially in this age in which we live of social media, is on message boards or social media platforms, which really what they do is they turn into debates and point-counterpoint arguments. And that's one of the reasons why I do not engage anyone with such discussions on those platforms because it's hard to be redemptive and careful and, and interactive because the platform is not conducive for that. My appeal to myself and my appeal to you is that we have more discernment with how we engage individuals to deflate their arguments while making a case for our ideas. How you steward your knowledge is a sober responsibility. And I know it happens, and I tell my students this, uh, that when they first come into like our mastermind program and they start learning these wonderful truths, a purer form of sanctification and discipleship and how to care for others, and as they're soaking it in and they're getting so excited, and then what they do is they they look out over the congregation, they look out over their local churches, and they just want to run through the church and yelling that there's a better way, there's a better way. And that is a temptation, especially when you're first introduced to these pure forms of discipleship, sanctification, practical theology that I'm talking about. How we steward our knowledge is a sober responsibility. Because the primary problem with denunciating an idea is that you may condemn the person in the process, which will leave them confused, bewildered, and possibly hopeless. Imagine that if I went back to my aunt so many decades ago, and if I would have said that, hey, I, I am getting an, a master's in biblical counseling, and I'm, I'm learning a more precise way of understanding sanctification, and, and the lines are, are clearer to me than they have ever been, and, and James Dobson is on the other side of the line, and that's not where you want to be. 
Well, that would be a humongous struggle for her, and it would be inappropriate at that time to do that. And so I never did do that with her. I was grateful that in the mercy of God and that he gave her something that could help her because the church was failing her and, and she needed help because she was hanging on by a bare thread as she was trying to live with a serial adulterer. And so I was thanking God for James Dobson and not so caught up with Nat straining about his integrationist ideas. It's similar to the biblicist condemning the gay person for his sin rather than coming alongside him to build a relationship, hoping to lead him to a, a better place, a better way, because there's something within him that is compelling him. There's something within him that is telling him that this is right. My lifestyle is right, and so you want to be wise and careful in how you communicate your truth to them there was something in Dobson's books that seemed right to my aunt, and it might not be the purest water that you have ever had, but it was water nonetheless, and, and it, was, it was sustaining her for another day. When you tell someone how wrong they are about something that is important to them, you may hurt them, not help them. The truth is there are scores of testimonies from people who have benefited from Chapman's book. As you are debunking, be sure to offer hope that builds up. It's not a competition in communication. It's not a debate. It's not point-counterpoint. That can't be what it's about. We can't reduce our redemptive interactions to social media tweets because that is not redemptive for these important discussions where a person is sincerely asking. We want to pull it out of that context and have a uh, more comprehensive discussion, and we want to be careful that we don't condemn things that are important to them. I shared this story before about a lady who was on medication, and I just asked her about her medication, and just by asking the question, she flipped out on me. I'm not going to go through that story again, but what she felt was is I was uh, going to rip something away from her that was very important to her, and that's what she was hearing. That's not what I was saying at all. But that's what she's hearing. And so when someone comes to you and said, this is helping me and this is, I'm learning a lot from this, be careful how you steward your truth. Now the question is, are there any flaws with five love languages? Maybe you can attach to that question, or this is, how, this is what I would attach to that question. Are there any flaws with my work? The answer to both questions is an absolute yes. There are flaws, which is why it's imperative that I enter into this section of this podcast with the log in my eye. And it's also how you want to enter into a conversation with a gay person or any other individual who needs your wisdom and your care. His sin and yours put Christ on the cross, and the nails in Jesus' hands are not bigger because his sin was worse than yours. Honestly, we don't want to be like the Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, 
adulterers, integrationist, I inserted that one, or even like this tax collector who really doesn't understand biblical counseling. I am so thankful that I'm not like that individual. And so we want to be careful as we enter into this discussion. And so the question is, well, the overarching question that was asked in episode 176, this podcast, what is your opinion about five love languages? And the question that I just asked, are there any flaws in it? Yes, there are. There are flaws in it. And I want to mention two of them. The first one is the codification or codification, maybe. Uh, but the codification problem, whenever you codify something, that thing you codified can become the way, meaning if I give you this in a box, I give you a box with, with five items in it. That's the box, and these are the five items that are in the box. That's what I mean by codification, and when you give someone a box like that with five items in it, then that box can be the totality of how things are to, are, are to uh, happen, how things are to transpire, how you are to do whatever it is that we are talking about. It's the codification problem. It's one of the reasons that I'm hesitant to write a book on, on small group life. I want to write one, but I'm hesitant about writing one because people would, let's say, get the book on small group life, how to do small group, and they said, well, this is how you do small group. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's how you do it partially. Doing small group life is much bigger, and doing small group life should never be codified and should never be reduced down to a book. And so there's the codification problem, and, and it can become the way. There's only five love languages, and what it does is it eliminates spirit-led illumination, spirit-led interaction, spirit-led relationships. The Lord wants us to live a pneumatic life, meaning walking in the spirit, not a legalistic one. Now, I'm not saying that uh, five love language advocates are legalists. I'm not saying that at all, but the temptation is real because the truth is we do like our rules. We like our list. We like structure. We like everything tidy and in a box. We want to paint by numbers and, and become, we can become eerily uncomfortable when the path before us is not made plain. How do I love her? How do I love him? How do I say it the right way to my son or to my daughter? Proverbs 16:9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We don't want to be passive in how we think about people. We want to have ideas, but we also want to lean heavily into the Lord to give us what we need and to illuminate our minds as we interact with others. Our faith must be in God, not in the known outcome, which has all the right answers. Well, this is, I have all the answers now. I have five love languages, so I know the outcome. Therefore, I can move forward in confidence you're moving forward in confidence will be based on what you know by these five things. Our confidence must be in the Lord. And maybe the Lord has more nuance and contour in this relationship. Maybe he, may, maybe he has other ways for you to think about how to love this person. Maybe you need to do more exegesis with this person and, and don't codify it to where there are just five ways. You don't want to shrink life down to five possibilities, but you want to ask God to give you an abundance 
abundance of light with many ways to to demonstrate your love to others while giving you the insight to do it in such a way that resonates with them. At best, you could say five love languages is a starter set, but it would be wise to chuck it after a while if you ever use it at all. Now, personally, I've never recommended it to anyone. I never will recommend it to anyone because it's not, I just don't see that as a, a good answer. My goal with folks who need to learn how to love others well is not to give them five love languages to use as a crutch, but to teach them how to discern the spirit as it relates to the person that they want to serve. Now, this worldview is not an anomaly. We are consistent in this worldview in all aspects of our ministry. It's how, our te- it's how I teach our mastermind students. I don't want them to ever learn a script for counseling and map it over a counselee. I want them to learn how to relate to God on behalf of that person and then care for that person in a way that is spirit-led, God-centered, and theologically precise. We hear it in the cliches all the time. Here's the answer, trust God. Here's the answer, you need to trust Jesus. No, we don't want to use our starter set answers and our bumper sticker cliches. We want to lean into the Lord. We want to learn how to exegete people, to discern people, to use our wisdom. We want to lean into God on behalf of that person so that we can bring that spirit-led, God-centered, theologically precise care. And so there is a codification problem. And I want you to be aware of it. And if you find that you have shrunk down to you know, these five answers, then ask God to break, break the box. Break the box because there are more effective ways. There's better ways to love someone. But then there's a more critical problem, and I call it the deceptive heart problem. You know the verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. The most significant problem of all with any potentially good template that we want to use is our deceptive hearts. We've got to acknowledge our deceptive hearts. And as a biblical counselor, I will tell you that the number one negative feedback that I have seen with five love languages is how it fosters and irritates conditional relationships. This issue is legitimate, and in nearly every case, which has been numerous, the husband and wife bicker over such things as, he doesn't love me the way I want to be loved. And it becomes a self, uh, self-centered, combative thing. And I, I can't even remember, honestly, all the times that I have seen this idea twisted and inverted to the point to self-centeredness and, and meeting needs. Now, this problem is enormous. And it needs a lot of theological clarification and humble interaction. And I have written extensively on this problem of our desires morphing into needs and how our needs set us up as adversaries in our relationships. And if you want to do a deeper study, then I I have several articles here that you can read. They're linked here in these show notes of episode 176. Setting aside your desires to lead your husband When desires for love and respect destroy your marriage, you cannot need someone and love someone at the same time. 
loving me, the hidden agenda of self-esteem, his needs, her needs aren't real needs. And then finally, angry people have too many needs. And you can read all of these articles and you can spend a lot of time thinking about this idea. I want to close up uh, this podcast, episode 176, What is Your Opinion About Five Love Languages with a Call to Action. I have three questions for you. Number one, how good are you in stewarding your rightness? Perhaps the best way to answer that question is to ask someone with whom you have disagreed with about a matter such as five love languages. Are they motivated to listen to you or argue with you? The question is, how good are you in stewarding your rightness? Number two, are you quicker to debate with someone or relate with them with the hope of helping them mature in Christ? And as I was saying earlier, this is a huge downside to social media as most interaction turns into debates. Question number three, after you dismantle their position, do you leave them with hope in a spirit of reconciliation? After you dismantle their position, do you leave them with hope in a spirit of reconciliation? Episode 176, what is your opinion of five love languages? I just shared it with you. Perhaps you have an opinion about it that you want to share with me. I will not interact with you on social media, but I will interact with you gladly. What you need to do is come to our website and jump in our community forums, fill out your username and your password, and then just type whatever it is that you want to type, and we'll be more than happy to talk with you. Perhaps you have something else on your mind. That's good, too. We are here to serve you. We would find great joy in coming alongside you with whatever question that you may have. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.